It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of May 11th, 2008. Happy Mother's Day. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. This week I found myself thinking about tipping points, about trends, about why some things are inevitable. Cars, for example, radio, television, personal computers, cell phones. That's one I called wrong at the beginning. Back in the 80s, I wondered who would ever really want a cell phone. (laughs) That has to be my largest technical blunder ever. CDs, DVDs, inevitable. Open source operating systems and applications. Microsoft is okay with most of the items I just mentioned, not so okay with the last one. About 25 years ago, Microsoft came from nowhere and eventually knocked IBM out of the controlling position it once held in the computing industry. Today it's Microsoft that has that controlling position, at least on the desktop, and the open source movement is itching to watch history repeat itself. And it will. Microsoft can and certainly is trying to do everything it can to delay the process, but it's already lost the war. Remember the late 1980s? That's when CDs started being used along with computers. You could add a CD player to a personal computer, 600 bucks or so. You could even add a burner, $3,500. And that's when the price had already started to come down. So it was expensive, and you didn't have a lot of titles to choose from. But the future was clear. CDs would be used to deliver data to computers. Within a few years, CD players and computers cost $20 instead of 500 or 600 Software publishers realized they could ship their applications on $5 CDs. Those eventually dropped to about $0.35. Cents. Instead of using 15 floppies that each cost a dollar. So if you've got a CD, or these days a DVD, that costs you maybe a dollar to make, versus floppies that would cost you $15 at least, And maybe you sell 100,000 copies of your application. This allows you to save $10 worth of production costs on every copy. You've just shoved a million dollars to the bottom line. And now you can buy a device that reads and writes CDs and DVDs, most formats, for $50 or less. In fact, this week, Newegg sent me an email offering a DVD burner, plus or minus R, at LightScribe capacity, 20x burn speed, and a parallel ATA interface, 28 bucks. By the way, if you think parallel ATA interface is an improvement over the serial ATA, it's not. PATA is just a new name for the technology that was invented in the 1980s. Back then we called it IDE. Recently, a friend who lives in California sent me a link to a European Commission website. The site said that the transition to open-source software is underway, but that it wouldn't move quickly. Okay, well, that's true as far as it goes. The changeover will be slow for a while, but eventually the tipping point will be reached, and the tipping point is likely going to blindside Microsoft. The article says that the European Union's parliamentary IT department is testing the Linux distribution Ubuntu, OpenOffice, and Firefox, along with some other open-source applications. Although these products meet the Parliament's office requirements, British Member of Parliament James Nicholson says that a fast conversion 
would raise serious problems in terms of support and guarantees for the IT infrastructure. Well, the latest version of Ubuntu Linux is astonishingly easy to install and maintain. In two weeks, on May 25th, I'll tell you about Ubuntu Linux version 8.04, codenamed Hardy Heron, and why Ubuntu is a company that should be making Microsoft very nervous. I had a question this week about converting accounts, address books, and email from Outlook Express 6 to the mail program that comes with Vista. Now, I'm going to call this application Vista Mail, just to differentiate it from other applications. Its name is actually Microsoft Mail, and it comes with Vista, but that seems like a rather a long name. So when I say Vista Mail, I really mean Microsoft Mail that's included with Vista. It seemed to me that the process should be pretty easy. I mean, they're both Microsoft products, after all, and upgrading from Outlook Express to Vista Mail should be simple. Should be. Didn't turn out to be. Converting the account requires that you export the account settings, the address book, and the messages from Outlook Express, and then import each of those into mail. Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? It should be easy, and in fact, the first two parts are. I don't use Outlook Express, and I don't use Vista Mail, so when I received this question, I had to look around a bit to figure out how I could replicate the problem. Well, I do have Outlook Express 6 on the notebook computer, at least when it's running XP instead of Linux, So I set up an account there for the experiment, added a couple of contacts, and generated both some inbound and outbound mail so I could confirm that the process had worked when I actually did it. To start the conversion process, I exported the address book. Pretty simple. I put the address book on the desktop, later copied it to a thumb drive to move it to the Vista machine. Then I put the messages folders on the desktop. It would be easy just to note where the messages are and then copy that directory to the thumb drive, but I thought... Actually, moving the message store to the desktop made sense, simply because the messages are stored several subdirectories deep. Putting the files on the desktop would put them where I already put the previous files, so they'd all be together. So now you've got all the files that you need on the desktop. Time to copy them to a thumb drive, or if you're working on the same machine, just make sure they're in a directory that both Vista and XP can see. In doing some research, I discovered that some people have had a problem because the read-only flag is set on the files that you've moved. That wasn't true with mine, but apparently it can happen. So you need to right-click each of the files and check properties and make sure that the read-only flag is not selected. And then another trick. You need to run Windows Mail as administrator. doesn't matter if your account on Vista has administrator privileges. You need to right-click Windows Mail from the menu and choose Run as Administrator. You probably wouldn't think to do this, but it's important to the successful completion of the import. So importing the contacts is easy. You just navigate to the appropriate directory where you have the file, select the file, and say Import. No big deal. Now you want to import the account. It's another easy step. Go to the location where you have stored the account information and open the file. Your Outlook Express 6 account will be installed in mail. If you have more than one account, just repeat that process. And now it's time to import the messages. Here's the step with the bug. You've probably been lulled into thinking the process is pretty easy at this point. This is where Microsoft complicates things. So you select Import Messages. You want to select 
Outlook Express, six messages from the next pane. On the pane after that, there is no choice, so you just click OK. Going along just fine, no problem. You navigate to the directory where you've stored the files, and this is the third time you've done this, so you probably think it's going to go just like clockwork. You point to the location with the files, and you're offered nothing. Well, then I started really looking at what I was seeing on the screen in front of me. I had a directory called OE Express Stuff. It was on a thumb drive. But what the import process showed was drive G, Outlook Express Stuff, backslash Outlook Express Stuff. It doubled the directory name. Well, of course there's no directory called OE Express Stuff under OE Express Stuff. Once you manually type the directory name into the address box, everything is fine. Then it shows you that you can import messages. Now, if this seems far harder than it should have been, it is. Vista has been out for more than a year. Bill Gates once somewhat famously said that Microsoft software doesn't have bugs. But this one still has not been fixed. And you have to wonder why. If you use Outlook Express 6 on an XP machine and you're upgrading to Vista, you might want to keep track of this week's show. It should be a big help when you need to actually move everything from one place to the other. Complete with illustrations on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. I received a message in Russian recently. No big surprise there, because a lot of spam goes out in Russian. The ruble, euro, and yen are worth more than the dollar these days. Well, this offer in Russian suggested that I could buy a one-hour attack for 20 web monkeys. One-hour attack. Oh, a, de- a distributed denial-of-service attack. Yes, for 20 web monies. What's a web money? A web money is an electronic money and online payment system. Transactions are conducted through Web Money Transfer. WM Transfer Limited is the owner and administrator. It's a Central American company founded in 1998 that was originally targeted mainly at Russian clients, but it's now used worldwide. The company claims to have more than 4.5 million users, and I thank Wikipedia for that information. Well, the offer told me that if an hour wasn't long enough, I could shut down a competitor for whatever period I wanted. Kankurenia Shagnula Online is ready to assist me in creaming competitors, and apparently they have botnets standing by ready to work for me. They promise to shut down competitor sites worldwide by using distributed computers. This, they say, is a huge obstacle for admins. I should certainly think so. The distributed denial-of-service folks have a flexible system of discounts just for me because I'm such a nice guy. The actual price is going to be determined on an individual basis. Well, I didn't follow that up. Moving to nerdly news, and we're a little early on nerdly news this week because there's a rather lengthy article right here at the beginning. Lately, I have been seeing a lot of spams that promise 70% savings on fuel costs by converting your car to burn water. Now, if you paid attention in high school science class, you already know that this is a fraud. But the way some folks want to teach science these days comes down to, if I believe that this is the way something works, this must be the way something works. So, the creeps who explain that water contains two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen per molecule can easily convince the gullible that all you need to do is liberate the hydrogen and then use that as fuel. 
Only a fool would believe it, but P.T. Barnum said there's one born every minute, and he may have underestimated the situation. So I decided to take a look at this spam, and then I took a look at the website. The website's scientific logic wasn't exactly logic. Science has rules involving predictable outcomes, evidence, repeatability, and testing. The website offers videos, speculation, and obfuscation. Not much in the way of science. So I went to Google and searched for burn water instead of gasoline. The link that caught my attention was a paid link, oddly enough, from Run You Car on Water Scam. Well, despite the grammatical error, I thought that maybe there was a chance that this might be a site that would blow a hole in the science. Instead, what I found was a site that pretended to compare three systems that would run your car on hydrogen liberated from water. So if you're one of the skeptical folks and you type into Google, run your car on water, scam, this is the site you're going to see. But it's not really going to talk about the scam. It's going to show you how to run your car on water. And interestingly, it had been updated that very day. So the site said. Well, I knew better, of course. All it takes to show today's date is a tiny bit of JavaScript. In fact, I looked at the web source code, and indeed, there was the code that showed today's date as soon as you loaded the page. So there was lie number one, and I hadn't even really started reading the page yet. A later page told me that I could save money by ordering right now, today, because the special sale it was on would end tomorrow. Similar trick. But what I found most distressing that was a little while later, a Google AdWords ad was an ad for how to use water as gas. Google's a company that said it won't be evil, yet it accepts money from a company that is selling a product that is totally fraudulent. I use a lot of Google's services because they are useful, but my respect and trust for Google continues to be eroded. So to get back to burning water in your car, why won't this work? Well, there are the first and second laws of thermodynamics. They may not exist in the world of fools, but they do continue to have an effect here in the real world. If you read a description of the system and how it's supposed to work, you'll see that it depends on your being able to take water, turn it into gas, run the gas through a fuel cell, power your car, and then produce emissions that consist of water which you could then turn into gas, run through a fuel cell, and so on and so on. You may recall from high school physics that the conversion of energy consumes energy. What these folks describe is a perpetual motion machine. Yeah. And I can trap a kilowatt of electricity in an extension cord by plugging one end into the other, and then run my house on it forever. Well... Ignorance can be cured. If you don't know about science, you can learn. Stupidity, unfortunately, is forever. If you learn something, you won't be hoodwinked by the criminals who put forth this kind of nonsense. When you learn stuff like that, you are no longer ignorant. Those who refuse to learn can be described fairly, I think, as stupid. Show them something that looks good, even though it violates the laws of physics, and they line up to hand over their money to you. Okay, so if a car can be run on the hydrogen you get by disassociating a water molecule, you could just bypass the conversion step and run the car on electricity. Oh, wait a minute, how did electricity get into this discussion? Well, it's because the only way to liberate hydrogen from water is to place electrodes in the water and use electricity. 
Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. The hydrogen in the test tube makes a wonderful noise when you set it alight. But the cost of hydrogen was electricity. And the cost of electricity is coal or gas or occasionally geothermal or hydro. And if you are still among the people who believe the electric power industry's assertion that electricity is a clean energy source, just keep in mind that most electricity is produced by burning coal. But to get back to that hydrogen experiment, you can't get more energy out of the hydrogen than it takes to create the hydrogen. You will, in fact, get less. That's physics. That's science. Science is science. Faith is faith. Confusing the two is dangerous to both. Jerry Yang, the head of Yahoo, seems to be elated this week, but many of his stockholders are disgusted. Yahoo defeated Microsoft's takeover bid, but I wonder if the company actually snatched destruction instead. Yahoo's fortunes have been fading a bit recently, and most outside analysts felt that the Microsoft takeover bid was good news for Yahoo. There were questions about regulatory approval, particularly in the European community, but Yahoo stockholders were already counting their gains. Yahoo held out for more money than Microsoft was willing to spend. Microsoft withdrew its offer this week, and Yahoo's share price dropped. This is victory. Yahoo now seems to be weaker, possibly seen as damaged goods. Microsoft may have won the battle without firing the shot and without spending a dime. I keep thinking back to the days when WordPerfect was the leader among word processors, and when IBM was still king of the hill when it came to computers. Microsoft led IBM and WordPerfect down the OS2 trail, then suddenly headed for the exits and announced that Windows was the future. Could that be analogous to what just happened here? Well, here's a clue. According to the Associated Press, Yahoo says Microsoft's last bid at $33 a share was not submitted in writing. That in itself would be odd, particularly when you consider that Microsoft's initial bid of $31 a share, or $44.6 billion, was submitted in a letter that contained specific financing terms. little sleight of hand from Redmond there, perhaps? Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of Mother's Day, May 11th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And remember, you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.